John chapter 2, just a real quick review of John chapter 1, kind of some of the stuff we spoke of last time. Uh, in 1 John chapter 5, it says, this is the testimony. This is what God says. This is what God gave to John to say, that God has given us eternal life. God has given us eternal life, a quality of life that is just incomprehensible, and then beyond that, even more incomprehensible. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is only one source of life in the whole universe, and that's the Son of God. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to believers. Uh, this is not an evangelical track necessarily. He's writing to people who know the Lord, who believe in Jesus Christ. That you may know that you have eternal life. That's what God wanted John to get across to us, that we would know that we have eternal life, that we would have that assurance. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God that we grab hold of that eternal life. Uh, John was the disciple that Jesus loved, and <clears throat> last time we were saying that there's, like, there's a number of themes to 1 John. Uh, the main one is love, agape, that agape love, that unconditional, self-sacrificing love, and we kind of defined it as God has chosen to love us in spite of us. That's agape love. Not asking for anything in return. Uh, Jude said, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. It, it doesn't mean that, okay, God loves you, but don't do anything that will make him change his mind. It means that we depend and we rely on the love of God for everything. We live, we abide in God's love. Uh, depending on that and nothing else. And another theme through it is abiding. Abiding in Christ. Finding, abiding means to find a good place and staying there, that you don't have to look any further because the place that you found is perfect, and you just stay there. Uh, Jesus said in John, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. That's where God wants us to live, stay, and thrive, is in his love, in his agape love. Another theme was light, light that illuminates, and light chases away darkness. And also assurance that we, he says, I, I write this so that you know that you have eternal life. God wants us to be, have that assurance, to have that rest, not to wonder, am I going to make it, or what if, or anything else, but he wants us to know, you've got it, you've got it. You, I have given you eternal life. You didn't do anything to earn it. You never will deserve it. It's a gift. I've given it to you. Uh, knowing that assurance, knowing that our devotion to God won't get us into the kingdom, and our lack of devotion to God will not exile us from the kingdom. It's a gift. It's given to us. Uh, you are called, you are being sanctified, and you are preserved in Christ. And lastly, the last thing John says in this letter is, little children, keep yourselves from idols, uh, knowing Jesus in truth. No weird notions of him, no uh, skewed notions of him, but knowing Jesus in truth. So, 
In chapter 2, verse 1, he starts off, he says, my little children. You know, what a nice way to start a letter, my little children. John was the last living of the 12 apostles. He was an old man when he died. He refers to himself as John the Elder. The church, I'm sure, looked to him as a father. And you can see his heart, how he viewed believers as little children, his little children. It must have been great to a fellowship with John, just to be with somebody who had walked with Jesus and, and knew the love of Jesus. And from a young age, he was the youngest of, his, of the disciples when he started, and following him and knowing him and have that revelatory knowledge of God. Uh, Paul prayed in Ephesians for us, he said, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this was John. John, that, that's what, where John was at. Uh, he looked at the church with the heart of God, my little children. Psalms, David says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. You know, how, how does a parent feel when they see their child in trouble or hurting or sad or scared? As the father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. How does a parent react when they see their child hurt or threatened or scared? You know, sometimes it's dusting them off and saying, go ahead, get back in there. And sometimes it's holding them on, their, on your lap and just hugging them. Uh, the inference of that word pity is to hold someone on, your, on their lap and hug them. He says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. He loved them with the love of Christ. And he was writing to them, pleading with them. I write these things that your joy will be complete, that you know you have eternal life. But I'm also writing these things so that you do not sin, so that you may not sin. He loved them with the love of Christ and prayed because they were his children, his little children. He prayed. He didn't want them to get hurt. And he didn't want them to hurt anyone else which is what sin does. I want you to be safe. I want you to obtain and get everything that God has for you. I want your joy to be complete. So I'm writing these things so that you may sin not, so you don't lose out. Uh, his heart broke for them with love and concern. Uh, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and John didn't want the church to suffer any degree of death any degree of loss of fellowship with God or missing out on what God has for us, the life that God has for us. He says, if, and if anyone sins, and we have to remember when reading through John, uh, it is acknowledged that we do sin, that, that we do mess up. This doesn't excuse sin. It doesn't discount the consequences for sin. If somebody tells you not to jump off the roof and you jump, you're going to get hurt. It doesn't make an excuse for sin. Sin is missing the mark. The mark for God is perfection, the bullseye. That's God's desire. That's what God demands is perfection. And when we sin, we miss the mark. Thank God we're justified by the cross. Sin robs us of what God wants us to possess and experience. We lose out. But we look forward to that hope. Ephesians, Paul says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory, which is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for our redemption to be redeemed. He has bought us and he will be, he will redeem us someday. We redeem us from this flesh. We have been perfected in Christ by the cross, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been perfected in him because our sins have been taken away. So when God looks at us, he sees us as perfected. But we haven't been redeemed yet. That day is coming. That's what we're looking forward to. Uh, when When we are redeemed, we will be able to worship and serve God in total perfection. But until then, we're in these bodies. We're in this flesh. And as Paul writes, he says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? More in the flesh, that's kind of where we're at. We're waiting for our redemption. And yet, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Spirit of God abides in us. Not only do we have free will, but we also have the ability to know the truth and to walk in the truth that God has given us through the Spirit. You know, is is there any excuse for sin? John acknowledges that we are going to sin, but is there really any excuse for sin? It's acknowledged that we fall short, but there's really no good excuse. If there was a good excuse for sin, uh, the cross wouldn't be needed. Yet we have excuses. We make excuses. Uh, in In the excuse hall of fame, there's some good ones from the Bible. There's Saul, when he was told to wipe out the Amalekites and wipe out everything, even the livestock. And he comes back, and they, he's got all the sheep with him. And Samuel says to him, what is that? And he says, oh, he goes, uh, I did wipe out everything, but I saved the best ones to sacrifice to your God. That's a good one in the Hall of Fame of excuses. A good runner-up is uh, Eve. You know, Eve, what have you done? Uh, the serpent deceived me. Uh, next runner-up is Adam. He's got a good one. Uh, you know, Adam, what have you done? Lord, uh, it's, it's that woman you gave me. It's the woman you, get, you gave me. So it's not really my fault. Um, but the number one winner in the Hall of Fame of Excuses, I think, is Aaron. When Moses came down from the mountain and they were sacrificing to the idol, and Aaron said, I, I don't know. The people gave me their gold and they threw it in the fire and this calf came out. You know, that, that's the Hall of Fame number one excuse. But we also have excuses. The devil made me do it. I'm only human. Uh, you know, I messed up. Uh, we, we, our genetics, you know, I'm Italian. So if you cross me, you're going to be sleeping with the fishes. Or I'm Irish, so where's the nearest pub? Or I'm German, so I have this need to take over the world. Uh, we have all these different excuses for our behavior. Uh, So is there an excuse for sin? For the believer, there is no excuse for sin. There is only victory over sin for the believer. Uh, Someone said to me once, I was talking to them, and they said, well, there's only 10 commandments, and I do the best I can. And if that's not good enough, the heck with it. Uh, And, you know, to the extent that people obey the commandments, they will be blessed. 
you know, to the extent that they don't murder anybody, to the extent that they don't steal or commit adultery, they're going to be blessed. But God's standard is perfection. God's demand is perfection. Jude, it says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. If God's demand isn't perfection, then the gospel's a fairy tale. Uh, Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Just take a look at some of his commandments. Exodus 20, verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he's telling them, there, there is a reason for you to worship me. There is a reason for you to serve me, to obey me. You know, John wrote, I write these things that you sin not. There's a reason not to pay me back, God's saying, you know, you worship me and serve me, not to pay me back, but because I am the Lord your God who has is, who is cared for you, who has taken care of you. Uh, verse 3 says, you shall not have other gods before me. These commandments are from God. They are true, they are right, they are real, they are good, they are binding, And every human being on earth, these commandments make every human being accountable before God. And and they are, do this and don't do that for your good. For your survival on earth, do these commandments. To the degree, degree that you obey, you will be blessed. But they are also impossible to fulfill. Because God's standard is perfection. He gave them commandments that were impossible to keep, given his standard of perfection. Uh, He desires us to do the things contained in these commandments, and he gave them to the people to keep them alive, to keep them alive, that they would survive. Um, But notice, you know, and I may be going out on a limb here, so cut it off if I am. Uh, He doesn't say, do not have any gods before me. He says, you shall not have any other gods before me. It's future tense. In the future, you will not have any other gods before me. You will not have any gods before me. Uh, There's going to come a day when you won't. You will not commit adultery. You will not murder. These commandments will be able to be done. There will be a, a, a day when these commandments are fulfilled and you will be able to walk in them and we are living in that day now this is the you shall days Uh, verse four excuse me he says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth do not commit idolatry It, it is it is true uh, you shall not commit adultery is even more true. It's prophetic. The, the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament speaks of Christ. And, and the Ten Commandments speak of Christ. It's prophetic. 
you shall not commit adultery. John says in the end of his letter here, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You know, there is going to come a day, you shall not commit adultery. There's going to come a day when you will know me in truth. And you will be cleansed from idolatry. Uh, David said in Psalms, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. It's like he's saying, I, I will come to know you in truth as you really are and, and then sinners will be converted to you. Second Corinthians, Paul says, For it is the, the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, idolatry is a killer. It causes us not to live by faith. It, it blinds us from knowing the truth. And if we don't know him in truth, we cannot worship him or serve him. We won't. You shall have no other gods before me. There is coming a day when, because of the death, resurrection, and giving of the Holy Spirit, You'll, you are going to begin the adventure of knowing God in truth. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. I'm sorry, i got to do one Sunday school story. Uh, I am a jealous God. We kind of explained it to the kids like uh, there are two flies, Norman and Sydney. Norman goes over to Sydney's house to play. He knocks on the door. Uh, Sydney comes to the door, and Norman says, My friend, come out and play. And Sydney says, I can't play with you today, and I'm not going to play with you ever again because I have a new friend, Mr. Spider. And Norman says to him, you don't want to play with him. Come out and play with me. You do not want to play with Mr. Spider. And Sidney says, well, you're just jealous because I have a new friend and you're being left out. Norman was jealous, but in a way that God is jealous. He, he was jealous for his friend. He was not angry for being left out or rejected. He was concerned for his friend. His jealousy was out of love for his friend. Uh, we have free will. We can play with Norman or we can play with Mr. Spider. Uh, if we play with Mr. Spider, the consequences will, can last for generations. Verse 7, he says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Yeah, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, but it's prophetic here. He says, you, you shall not. There's going to come a day when you won't. You shall not be a phony. You, you shall not be a hypocrite. You shall not say that you're something when you're not. When you receive from God, there will be a true, real, and heartfelt response. And you will not receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 8, he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall work and labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger, who is in, in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Basically saying here, take a day off. Take a day off. Chill. Go to church. Worship the Lord. Fellowship with believers. Be renewed. Restore the joy of your salvation. You know, after a week... Of by the sweat of your brow, we need a day to, 
to come back to the Lord. You know, take that day and come back to me. And again, it's prophetic. You know, there, there, is, there will be a day when, when that blessing of rest won't be just in a day. There will be a day when the Son of God will stand on the earth and say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 12, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You know, the importance of a Christ-centered family, uh, a family that is of one mind, wanting to serve the Lord, wanting to obey God and do what God wants them to do, which the enemy desires to totally destroy, and which is in the process of doing, unfortunately, in our country today. Verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. Yeah, if you murder one another, you will destroy one another. Don't murder. But Jesus said in Matthew, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. So given God's standard of perfection, they could keep from killing each other, but they could never fulfill the commandment. Given God's standard of perfection is defined by Jesus. Uh, but he's saying there will be a day. There will be a day when sin, that sin is forgiven and the love of God will be shed abroad in our hearts. So there is no excuse for sin. There's only victory over sin for the believer. 14, he says, you shall not commit adultery. The, the perfection, you shall not. The perfection that God desires and demands will be fulfilled. Sexual activity outside of marriage, outside of a marriage between a man and a woman, is sin. It's a destroyer. It destroys people. It destroys families. It destroys nations. Jesus said in Matthew, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you know, and somebody hearing the law of Moses could say, well, I've never committed adultery. Uh, I've never cheated on my wife. Uh, good. That's good. But Jesus said, if you look at someone with lust, you've already committed adultery. It's like, man, you can't even do that. That's wrong. Second Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new and way better, by the way. You shall not. There will come a day when you will be able to meet God's standard of perfection because of the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, you shall not steal. I recently shared with the Sunday school class I confessed a sin of mine. When I was little, I was a uh, chocolate milk addict. And so I'm in this store, and I'm kind of walking around, and I see this whole case of chocolate milk, quarts of chocolate milk. So I look around, and I take one off the shelf and stick it in my coat and look around. And, you know, it's very slowly walk out of the store. Okay, get made it. Get out of the store. Yes run around the back of the store, open that thing up, and just, oh, I thought this is great. And I took a huge gulp of it, and it was spoiled. <laughs> have, have you ever swallowed a mouthful of spoiled chocolate milk? Lesson learned. You shall not steal. 
Uh, people say, well, you know, I never stole anything big. Uh, but there, come a, there will come a day when the thought of sinning will be repulsive to you. That, that's walking in the spirit because of the gift of God. 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, you'll be able, you shall not. You'll be able to meet God's standard of perfection. You will be able to love people as God loves people. Romans, it says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Covetousness, the Bible says, is idolatry. You're looking for fulfillment in something other than the Lord your God. Godliness with contentment is great gain, the Bible says. Uh, in Genesis, uh, I forget what army it was, but they attacked Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham got his tribe together and went after him and delivered uh, all the people from Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot, and they were dividing up the spoil, and Abraham wouldn't take any. And afterwards, the Lord said to him, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield your exceedingly great reward. He is our exceed. What else do we need? What else do we need? Covetousness will destroy a person. But as the commandment says, you shall not covet. There's going to come a day when you will be full. You will be full. You will know God in truth. In Hebrews, it speaks about persecuted Christians joyfully accepting. It says you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You know, those who are outside of Christ don't need an excuse for sin. Uh, you don't need an excuse for that which you don't consider to be sin. But for believers, there, there's no excuse. John writes to believers, there's no excuse for sin, there is only victory over sin. You know, concerning the law in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You know, you shall not do these things, because the law is written on our hearts. In Hebrews, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know, way back in the Old Testament, you, it's going to come a day where you shall not. Uh, people, I've heard many people say, I can't help it, I was born that way. You know, I've been hearing that a lot lately, and I got into a, a very heated argument with somebody the other day over this. I have yet to learn when to open my mouth and when to keep my mouth shut. Uh, but I don't believe that orientation, as the world, as the world calls it, that orientation or specific behaviors are hotwired into our DNA. Uh, you know, we are born sinners. We're born sinners with a fallen nature, and, and human beings are, are capable of literally anything, good or bad. Uh, and, and what is good and bad is defined by the culture, it's defined by the individual, and we as Christians know that ultimately it's defined by the word of God. 
And also it's a slippery slope when explanations for behavior diminish personal responsibility. Very slippery slope. We were all born this way. We were born sinners. We were born with a fallen nature, which is why Jesus said, you must be born again. You know? And people say, well, if we're born sinners, how can he blame us if we're born sinners? Because as Jesus said, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Back in 1 John, he says, I write these things so that you do not sin. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate, a defender, sort of like a lawyer. Job in chapter 9, feeling hopeless and helpless, he says, for he is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. He's, he's like, how can I communicate with this God? How can I plead my case? You know, obviously, I'm guilty of something. Who can mediate for us? But then, as we know, Job's eyes were open. And he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall at last stand on the earth. And in 1 Timothy it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. A defense lawyer, if you go to court, a defense lawyer pleads for the innocence of his client. Uh, our advocate doesn't plead for our innocence. It's sort of like, you know, we're on trial for a crime, and our defense lawyer gets up, and in his closing statements to the jury, he says, My client is guilty of this crime, but you can't condemn him because he's not guilty of this crime. You know, how can that be? In Acts, it says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justified. It's that word, justified, is how that can be justified. We have been justified before God because we have, been, we have done one thing. We believed in Jesus Christ, his son. We've been declared innocent, not on a technicality or because there was reasonable doubt, but because every evil intent and action that we have ever thought, done, has been removed from us and from the memory of God and was put on his son, Jesus Christ. We've been justified. People are justified when it's discovered that their actions were good. We are justified because one person's actions were good. And that righteousness has been given to us. So it's more than innocent. It's that word. We're justified. Verse 2, it says, and he himself is the propitiation. Propitiation. I think I said it right. I knew I was going to mess it up. Propitiation, whatever, for our sins. Propitiation, I think. For our sins. It means turning away wrath. If Pastor Rob does something really mean to me and hurts my feelings, as he has done many times, if he hurts my feelings and I say to him, Rob, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. You know, I'm really angry at you. And he comes to me and he says, oh, please, forgive me. Forgive me. I'm sorry. I say, nope, I'm sorry. I, 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 I 
can't forgive you. I'm too angry. And he says, well, here, take my gold top guitar. Go ahead, take it. And I say, all right, all right. So I take his guitar, and we're friends again. He has turned away my wrath. Uh, Do we consider Jesus being the propitiation for our sin? We consider that he was on the cross for six hours. And during that time, the wrath of God was poured out on him. During that time, he experienced, I don't comprehend this, uh, and I don't think I'm wrong in saying this, but he experienced an eternity in hell for every single person who ever was born. We can't comprehend it, and I don't think we ever will. Romans says, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. He is the propitiation for our sins. He took the blow. And that's Romans 5, 9. You can't skip it. I love verse 10. You can't skip it. It says, For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What a great verse that is. If when we were enemies, he suffered on the cross an eternity of hell for us. When we were enemies, now that we're his children, what is he going to do for us? If he does that for his enemies, what does he do for his kids? Propitiation for our sins, and it says in First John, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Uh, there is only one thing that will get a person into heaven, and that's receiving by faith the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. Justification and eternal life. There is only one thing that will separate us from God for all eternity, and that's rejecting the salvation that God has given us through Jesus Christ, which leads to judgment, and we will be found guilty. The person will be found guilty who rejects Christ. You know, but for the sins of the whole world, it, it, it's not, will he forgive me? Can God ever forgive me? Or will he ever forgive me? It's not, will he forgive you? It's that he already has. He already has forgiven you. And as Paul said, we beg you, be reconciled to God. Verse 3, it says, Now by this we know him if we keep his commandments. We know him if we keep his commandments. Remember the adulterous woman who stood before Jesus. They caught her in the very act and dragged her through the crowd, through the streets, and threw her down in front of Jesus. And those around them wanted to condemn her. And Jesus looked at her, and he, and he after getting rid of all the judges, he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So, you know, is it that in order to receive and keep this, this free gift of salvation, I have to sin no more? No, it's when this woman who was guilty, when she looked into the eyes of God, Jesus, and saw what was there, go and sin no more was the second sweetest word she's ever heard. The first were, I, neither do I condemn you. Remember, he's writing to believers, uh, those who are born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ. Their lone desire is to serve God, to obey God. We want to obey God. His commandments are precious. His word is our treasure and our anchor. In, in Deuteronomy, Jesus spoke to the people who were falling away from him. He said, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart. For the abundance of everything. John says his commandments are not burdensome, they're life. 
You know, how do we know that we're saved? Because in spite of our weaknesses and in spite of all our failures, we want to obey God. The Spirit is in us. Verse 4, it says, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I know I have broken every commandment in the book, and yet because of the grace given to me, in spite of me, you know, we can say, as David said in Psalms, he says, I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. You know, we cannot judge people. But anyone who says, I know him, and has no desire to obey God out of love, God is the judge. God is their judge. Verse 5, it says, But whoever keeps his word, David said, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. He also said, Therefore I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. You know, what is there on earth that we can see that we love the most? Family, friends, church, husband, wife. If we don't love and keep the word of God, and that word keep, it, it, there's, you know, it means obey, but before we can obey, we have to keep it. We have to treasure it. It means you keep it. It's your treasure. If we don't keep the word of God, there will be no real love for those whom God has called us to love. Absolute truth, when it comes to the word of God, is it's kind of an, an understatement. It, it, there, there is no other truth. It is the only truth in the universe. Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. So those who keep his commandments, back in 1 John, says, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. The love of God has filled him, and the, that person and the love of God is poured out through him. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, why do we serve God? Because we want to. We want to. We want to serve him. Because to some degree, we know the love of God and we want to serve him. It's not a legal relationship. It's not a compulsory relationship. It's a relationship between a father who loves his child and a child who is overwhelmed by the love of their father. That's the relationship. Paul said, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Verse 6 says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Boy, that's kind of a tough one. If I say I'm abiding in Christ, I'm supposed to live my life. Oh, man. You know, but this is like the fulfillment of you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not. If, if someone says, I'm abiding in Christ, there should be some evidence of that. If you're living in someone's house, you abide by their rules. You know, it doesn't mean that we're to walk on water. Uh, Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. You know, living as Jesus lived, you know, submission to his Father, dependence on the Spirit, speaking the word of truth, agape love, loving people in spite of. You know, do I love you with agape love? 
Absolutely. Unless you do something to annoy me. But it's, it's a process. It's a process. If we are abiding in him, he's always bringing us back to him. And speaking to his disciples, he says, You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And everybody that comes up to the pulpit here and in other churches, especially in these days, says the same things. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit. In these days, number one thing, pray for the Holy Spirit. That we would reflect the light of the world and that we would walk as Jesus walked. Verse 7, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. In Leviticus, it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In Matthew, someone came up to Jesus and said, Which is the great commandment in the law. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The first and second commandments have been the commandments since in the beginning. They've always been there. There's not a mean God in the Old Testament and a nice God in the New Testament. Love of God and love for others, which can only happen when one drinks from the fountain of life. In Revelations, it says, whoever desires, let him come, take the water of life freely. Jesus said in John, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Back in 1 John, in verse 8, he says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The old commandment, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love others. That commandment was always there throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and new. You know, I don't know, maybe the new commandment is, okay, now do it. Just do it. Do it in view of how God so loved the world. Do it through our through our growing in our knowledge of him and by the power of the Holy Spirit, now do it. Walk as Jesus walked. The Bible says become imitators of God. In the first chapter of John, it says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Darkness fears light, and the light is going to chase the darkness away forever. Verse 9 in 1 John, he says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In Proverbs, it says, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. In Hebrews, it says, looking carefully, lest any one fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You know, roots of bitterness. You know, first of all, we are in this flesh, and second of all, we're Christians, and there's a spiritual battle going on. 
and the enemy would love to snuff out the light of the, church, of the church. And it's real easy for roots of bitterness and squabbles and fights and things that creep up in the church. And, and the way they spring up, they spring up when we lose sight of the grace of God. Roots of bitterness start coming up. And when we lose, when bitterness replaces the desire to do the will of God, we are dead in the water. The light goes out. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 13 for a minute. Chapter 13, verse 9. It says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. People, you know, People say, yeah, okay, love, 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 yeah, right, whatever, whatever. You know, there, there's more to it. Some people say there's more to it than that, than all, than all this love talk. But for the believer, there is nothing else. Love of God, love for God, love for others, there is nothing else. Verse 11 says, and do this. Do this knowing the time. Do this. Now do it. You can do it, so do it. Do this. Because in Philippians it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do this knowing the time, that now it is high, high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. Now we wonder, what can we do? We see what's going on in the world today. The craziness. It just seems to be growing and getting more insane. And we wonder, what can we do? You know, how can we make a difference? Uh, how can people around us escape the great deception that is here and, and is going to get greater? You know, how can people be illuminated and spiritually raised from the dead? Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Matthew, he said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. John said, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There are a lot of people who do good works and thank God for them. There are a lot of people who can say things that are true. There are a lot of nice, good people around. There are a lot of people who can talk of biblical truth, but to love others to love the people around us in the church and outside of the church with that agape love of God, there's only one group of people who are able to do that, and that's us. How? Jesus said, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. As Jude said, keep yourself in the love of God. Just dependent on that. Keep yourself in the love of God. Don't, don't stray away. Pray for the Holy Spirit. There has never been a time in our history 
one of that city on a hill is needed more. You know, pray for the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. So, Lord, we pray. Help us, Lord, we pray. We do pray for the Holy Spirit. Because of your love for us, Lord, we desire to obey you. We desire to serve you. We desire to make an impact in this world and to the people that are around us, Lord. But we are weak. Uh, we can do nothing without you. So we pray that you would pour your spirit out upon us, Lord, that you would move us and use us, Lord, we pray. We pray for that rest, for that joy that is in you. And uh, we pray that you would be glorified, Lord, that your will is done, that your purpose is accomplished, we pray. And we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.